to Romans chapter 9, where we have been for a little while, and we will yet be for a little while longer. Um, we, uh, Romans 9, we, 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 are, we have reached um, verse 17. We have not done it yet. We did 14, 15, and 16 uh, last Wednesday. And uh, we have reached verse 17, and my plan is we will get through verse 24 tonight. My plan, all right? Um, because we still have uh, verse 25 through, through 33 to even finish up the chapter, and we still have several chapters in the book, all right? So this, uh, it's, it's like anything, it's kind of like when a, when, when a young preacher starts preaching, he preaches, you know, and, and no matter how hard he tries, and he puts as much as he possibly can into it, and, and he, he's, he's done in eight to ten minutes. And then as years go by, then he has to try really hard to cut it out because no matter how, much, how little he gives himself, he goes 30, 40 minutes. And, uh, and well, that's kind of how it's gone as we go through Romans. You start off, and it seems like you're kind of pushing through it pretty quickly. Um, but then the further you get into the letter to the Romans... It, uh, it, Paul gets into not just repeating himself over and over, though he does reiterate special truths and very specific things to the, to the Jews that were struggling with the whole idea of rejection of the Jews. And, and so he reiterates the difference between um, being a, a, a Jew uh, as of tradition and, a, and that which God is looking for. And he reiterates over and over again that it's not just of the Jews that salvation is, has, has come, but it's also to the Gentile, and he, you hear that over and over again. And so when you first start into the book of Romans, there's a lot of good content in the early chapters, but uh, it, it's not too hard to kind of push through some of the, the, uh, the surface starting points of it all. But as the letter went on, uh, Paul gets into some deeper and deeper and deeper um, elements of what he's trying to get across by really um, driving home uh, the issue that those that were Jews in Rome uh, that were really struggling with some of their their ingrained heritage, their ingrained indoctrination, you might even say, of uh, of Judaism and being an Israelite. Uh, and the idea that it is actually of Christ, not of being a Jew. It's of Christ, not of being of the house of Israel. Uh, and so it, it gets deeper and deeper and, and uh, uh, gooder and gooder. As my dad would always say, it gets tugger and tugger. If it got any tugger, it, if it, well, no, it, it, it gets, uh, oh my, how did he say it? Hold on. Um, it get tweeter and tweeter. If it got any tweeter, it'd be tugger. That's how I did it. All right, but um, but it, as a whole, the the deeper you get into it, the more truths we we pull out and we glean. Not even if you're not a Jew, even if you're not of the house of Israel by birth and bloodline, the Book of Romans is packed full of truth for both the Jew and the Gentile. And, uh, and so that's kind of where we've gotten to. We've been, we've been looking at, uh, at chapter 9, and uh, we've seen the first five verses as Paul pours out his broken heart uh, for the lost of Israel. 
and, uh, and then he goes into uh, the difficulty of reconciling the idea that there are those of the nation of Israel that would be rejected while Gentiles would be accepted. And so he goes into uh, to reconciling that, that understanding through the knowledge that he needed them to, to see and know. And so he went in, we've already dealt with uh, verse 6 through 13, with the explanation of the true meaning and intention of the promise. We are the people of the promise. Yes, but what is the promise? The pro- is the promise that you are a child of God eternally? No, that was not the promise. You had the promise of a blessed and protected nation. God would make a nation. Uh, I was, we were mentioning it today in, in, the, um, uh, in the office talking about the way things are going and in our country. And I, I would be very unpopular to say what I really think of, of uh, some of the issues we have to a degree. And I'll just tell you my opinion, and this is my opinion. If I'm wrong, that's fine. You can tell me I'm wrong later when it actually is proven that I'm wrong. But um, I have very strong doubts as to whether or not this nation will ever see a truly conservative leader again. I have my doubts as to whether or not America will ever see a time frame when we don't have uh, a, a leader that is being put in place by the controlling aspects of not those who vote in America but those who control aspects globally. Just mark her down. This is not a political thing. I'm just telling you because it ties into everything we're talking about even on Sunday nights. Mark her down. I believe that we are at a point, at a precipice in our, our time frame and in history when... What we think of America is an illusion. We think we have a country that we vote what happens. And we control it. Does that mean I'm not going to vote? Well, of course I'm going to vote. I'm going to give it my best shot. I'm going to get out there. I'm going to have have my say in putting out what I believe is right. However, I believe that what we have is, if you look around and you see what's really happening globally, I believe there's actually bigger forces and bigger powers in place that are pulling the strings to control nations around the world, America even being one of them. Why? Because we are heading to a point where you have to have a one-world government. Nations have to be willing to give up nationality for globalism. And you hear more of it in America than you've ever heard at any other time. Globalism. We, are, we have got to be uh, uh, citizens of the globe and not citizens of individual separate divided nations. Let's become one. Uh, you say, well, that, that just sounds like a conspiracy theory. God's the one that said it's going to happen. It has to happen. And if we truly believe that the coming of the Lord is nigh, even at hand, 
then the idea of having a global government has got to be accepted as being nigh even at hand. Now, I say all that, I say, that that has nothing to do with the message. Actually, it does, because in the end, uh, here's something I want you to consider. When the Bible references nations in the end times, can anybody tell me the only nation that's actually referenced by an individual name? Israel. Other than that, it's the nations or it's the people of the north or the east. They're referred to in a conglomerate as a directional type thing, but it doesn't say the, the nation of Russia, the nation of America, the nation of China. The, it, the Bible does not define and give exact names, though it does give an understanding of some names that are geographical in location, not specific in, in a national setting. But it always mentions the nation of Israel, specific. So the one nation that is truly its own when the rest of the world is going global is Israel. That's why the focus comes back to Israel, comes back to Israel, comes back to Israel. Now, I know there's people that will say, oh, no, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. With the Bible, it points out this. It says a name here, it says a name there. I get that, I get that. And there are nations, there are peoples, that, and there are those that band together, and we picture, okay, it's this one, this one, this one, and this one, but it's still a global movement. It's a movement of not having borders. It's a movement of having a one-world government. And Israel is the only nation that even after the entire world has fallen underneath the control of Satan himself in a one-world government, Israel's the only nation mentioned that all peoples attack and Satan tries to destroy because they're the only remaining nation in its individuality. Just an interesting thought. But that is the promise. That is the promise fulfilled all the way through the end times. Israel never stops being an individual nation. And as we get, grow closer to that end time prophecy being fulfilled uh, through the tribulation and all, as we grow closer, the nation of Israel, is they are being drawn back by their head and their heart, and everything is drawing them back to their land, to their people, as a nation in a place with God's purpose. So Paul wants, wants them to understand that the promise given was a promise of a nation, that God would protect. He would bless as long as they followed him, but God would protect regardless. And even when they were scattered to the four corners and they didn't even appear to be a nation, they still existed. And then they were brought back together and refounded officially in the eyes of men. And so Israel has always been uh, uh, around since, the, since, since God put it together through Abraham and through Isaac and through Jacob and that promise of God's protection of a created nation that would never go away, that he would make his personal, you want to put it this way? That's his personal uh, project nation. <laughs> That's what he does. That's his people. He is going to protect them and keep them going no matter who tries to destroy them. And, uh, and so that's the promise 
Got off on a little bit of a tangent there, but we were talking about that in, in, in the office today a little bit, and so I thought I'd just kind of share my thoughts on that, whether or not it goes over like a lead brick. Uh, we'll just let that, let it roll, all right? But then we've been looking at the, the assertion and proof of the absolute sovereignty of God in his dealings with the children of men. This is verse 14 to verse number 24. We already did 14, 15, and 16 in the, the great question, is there unrighteousness in God? The answer is, by Paul, instantly, God forbid. Uh, then we begin to look at the, God's sovereignty in his choices. And, uh, and I'm not going to rehash all of that because we've got to jump into the next area here underneath this. So it's not just God's sovereignty in his choices, but then we see in verse number 17, um, at, at down to verse number 24, um, you could put this all, lump it all into, into uh, a, a category C or section C underneath uh, this area uh, of the chapter that would be God's right and ability to use the just and the unjust. All right, God's right and ability to use the just and the unjust. Now in this, we break it down a little bit. Verse 17 and 18 presents to us God, the fact that God places men into positions of power. He's in control of the positions of power. Verse uh, 17, for the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy and whom he will he hardeneth. Now with this, understand, even Roman, we're not there yet, so I'm not gonna read a lot into it, but Romans 13 verse number one says, let every soul be subject, subject unto the higher powers for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. So again, no matter what we think of the powers that be in America or any other area in, in, in this entire world, any other country, the powers that be, whether I agree with them or don't agree with them, whether I like them or don't like them, you cannot argue the fact and win if you try to argue that God did not know what he was doing or God didn't have control of that scenario. God failed us. We got the wrong leader. God didn't fail us. Uh, God put exactly who he deems to be right. Well, how, how can some of these crazy people be, be what God considers right? Because not everything, take, take our ideas of what we think we deserve out of the picture. America is not just automatically deserving of God's blessings because we're America. Well, we're the country that God blesses. England was once the country that God blessed. And England turned their back on God. There's been several other countries that God has blessed over time when the gospel was there and when, 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 when people were turning to truth and then they turned their back on it and God gave them leaders that they deserved. Um, moving on with it, but you can, con, con, concerning Pharaoh here, 
Because it says, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up. Now think about that. God, God's, God's laying out that with Pharaoh, for his purpose, he raised him up. God can elevate and God can humble. God can give an individual a place of great prominence and power. And God can remove it. God doesn't always, just, just like when we say, well, you know, here, we talked about this before, you know, when bad things are happening to you, evidently you've done something wrong and God's mad at you. Not necessarily. Same is true uh, when, when, um, when um, you, you see certain things happen in, in somebody being lifted up and somebody rising to power and, and, and to great influence, you say, well, they must be a really good person. Not always. They might just be the perfect fit for God's intention. See, Pharaoh was not a good person. Pharaoh was not a loving and godly leader. But God raised him up. God made Pharaoh of that day, God made him one of the most powerful leaders, at least in his area of the world, if not in the world. He was powerful. He was dominating. He had a massive army. He had, I mean, when he commanded people to listen, they listened. He was one when he spoke, it happened. Who gave him the power? God. God said, for this cause, I've raised you up. I've given you strength. I've given you dominance. I've given you power. I've given you the armies. I've given you the opportunities. I placed all this before you and I put you in that position. Why? Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee. And that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. I remind you, when, uh, when the children of Israel got to uh, the, the promised land, when they finally went over and they finally met uh, against the first city called Jericho, and the spies went and they went into the house of one Rahab. When they went in, she spoke of how they had not seen Israel, they had not seen all, but they had heard what the God of Israel had done to Pharaoh and to his armies. Why did it make such an impact? Because God had raised him up into great power and great prominence and in great importance and a massive army. And then God used where, where he put Pharaoh to raise himself in the eyes of the world and for his power to be magnified by seeing Pharaoh fall in such a great way. Now understand, before Pharaoh fell, Pharaoh persecuted God's people. Made their lives miserable. But God raised him up. 
God used the unjust king in a powerful way. And people could look and say, this is not fair. And God says, no, it's exactly what I have planned. God can raise up leaders in any country that may not be the ones we look and say, well, that, that's not the kind of leader this country needs. God might say it's exactly the kind of leader I plan to put there because I have a plan to do something that you have no clue about. I know this is anti-patriotic, but God will put leaders into this country that will destroy this country because this country must fall. You cannot have globalism with nationality. There is no Americanism in the tribulation period. And so God will put into place what will fulfill his perfect sovereign plan. Does that mean we just sit back and say, well, I guess we'll just quit? No. The righteous still need to be righteous. God's people still need to stand for truth. You don't give up. You keep, you keep doing what you're supposed to do. And by, per adventure, God would find enough righteous to give a space of grace that there might be a chance to reach more with the gospel. You don't give up, but you understand there's a fine line between holding on to things that are, that are good and true and fighting against the will of God. Just be, be careful, be careful. But as it is here, he says, I didn't get very far thus far. I'm going to move faster. Here it is, move faster. But the scripture, he used Pharaoh. He brought Pharaoh up. He put Pharaoh where he put him. He did all of that. And, and, and here's, here's one way to understand it. When it says he, he hardeneth whom he will harden. When God said, I will harden his heart, it was a proclamation of his plan to withdraw softening grace, to leave Pharaoh to himself, let Satan loose against him and lay hardening providences before him. Because Pharaoh's heart was already against God and God just said, I'm going to use you where I put you and I'm going to let your own sinfulness take full-weighted control without anything from me stopping it. That's what it means when he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. God, all, all, all that God has to do to allow hardening is to remove softening grace. To say, I'm not, I'm not going to give any grace or mercy to help him. I'm going to let him have himself because that's what he wants. And hardening takes place. But then you find in 19 through 21, you find the correcting of the emotional struggle within man. Uh, it says, uh, Paul, Paul talking about how, you know, he'll have mercy, he'll have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. All right, so now Paul comes in, and before anybody can say anything, Paul goes ahead and he just says what they're thinking. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? He said, I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to bring up. You're now going to say, well, then 
How can God look at man and find any fault in man when man has no ability to resist the will of God? So it's God's fault. He willed it. We don't have a choice, and that's just it. Now, now Paul, Paul deals with this because he knows they're going to go on the defense, and that's why they would speak such things. So he just goes ahead and tells them what he's probably already heard from other Jews. He's going to go ahead and just tell them what he already knows they're thinking, and then he's going to answer it. Verse number 20, he says, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Now, this here, you would say, oh, oh, this almost looks like God's in control. Calvinism might be right. God's in control. God makes some to be saved and some not to be saved. No. What he's saying is, who is man to say, God, you did me wrong? Who, who is man to look and say, hold on a second, but that person over there who, who is wicked and evil, and, oh, evidently they don't have a choice. God wanted them to be that way. No, God never desired them to be that way. He made them a vessel. But as a whole, they can still choose God. They can choose to do right. But who, who is the creation to look at the creator and say, you messed up? How dare you? Or who do you think you are fashioning my life in this way to be so hard and so difficult? I'll I, I give you this, okay? Um, as we're looking here, the various dealings of, of God by which he makes some to differ, this, Matthew Henry says this, some to differ from others must be resolved into his absolute sovereignty. Now, here's, here's a key, understand. He is debtor to no man. His grace is his own. And he may give it or withhold it as it pleaseth him. We have none of us deserved his grace. And Matthew Henry goes on to say, he, he says, Nay, uh, we have all justly forfeited it a thousand times. So that herein the work of our salvation is admirably well-ordered that those who are saved must thank God only. It is by His grace that we are saved. And those who perish must thank themselves only. He said, none, none of us deserve it. We're all of the same lump. We're all of the same, the same make. God designed man not uniquely of those who would be favorable and those who are not favorable. God designed man from the same lump. Now, he designs each life uniquely, and he designs some. You ever notice that some people just seem to go through life a lot easier than others? Some seem to rise in prominence in what we would call to be great honor, and some seem to just disappear in the background, and I mean, their life amounts to almost nothing when you look at it in comparison to others. 
And you look and say, well, how can God, you know, do that to man and, and, and allow those things to take place? And some people, I mean, some kids are born to rich families and live a life of wealth and ease. And other kids are born uh, to, to poor poverty families. And they, they live in a dump trying to dig food out of the garbage. How can God be justified in allowing two different types of lives? He ought to, he ought to make everybody's life the same good life. Who is the creation to say to the creator, why hast thou made me thus? Man does, cannot and should never attempt to demand that God qualify his choices. We are the creation. Therefore, since we are all of the same make, and we are all underneath the same condemnation, not because of God's hand, but because of our own choosing. From Adam on, mankind is under the same condemnation. May I say, it is of the choice that man makes to trust God in his omniscient plan or to reject him, thinking that, we know better. Those who are saved must thank God and God only, and those who perish must thank themselves only. Um, the Bible says that Romans, we already looked at it, Romans one twenty eight. it says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient God allows vessels to go ahead and if they choose to be dishonorable, God will allow the vessel to go. He's not going to grab it, force it back, do it, and do what he wants against the vessel's will. He is going to fashion the vessel as the vessel makes itself available. But he will fashion some to grace and he fashions some to honor, some to dishonor. But it really comes down to the vessel and the vessel's willingness, put it that way. I gotta, I gotta move, last few verses here. Because there, there's an understanding with some of this as well that we, we do have to keep in mind and, and not, not forget. But... As we go through, when you look at God's timing and, and, and purpose and all, and that's the next area, verse 22 through 24, um, after it talks about the potter having power over the clay, Paul goes into exhorting the fact of God's timing and purpose in all of his judgments and all of his workings with man. It says, what if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. By the way, I don't believe this is in any way, it'd be inconsistent with Scripture to say that this is saying that God pre-fitted them. But it much, it's, I'll share this with you right now. It's much like in Romans 8, 29, and 30, which we already looked at before, 
just recently, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. God already has a pre-laid plan for those who receive Christ as their Savior. He's already got a predetermined, predestined plan for those who are his children. May I say the same comes into play when you look at this, this statement here, endured with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. This is more descriptive of God's predetermined plan for those who reject. God already has a plan of how to handle those who reject his way and reject him in disobedience. They're fitted for destruction, that is their end. And death, when it is finished, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. It is the finality of it. And so we understand that God's plan for those who, who are his children, whom he foreknew, he understood, he does know. You say, well, how do we, how do we, 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 we wrap our head around that? Sometimes there are just things about God you can't wrap your head fully around. How Almighty God could foreknow and yet still give man his own will and ability to choose. But in the fact that man has the ability to choose, God already knows what they will choose. All you can say is you know for sure from Scripture that whatever man chooses, God already has a predetermined destination for their choice. That's what it comes down to. It goes on in verse number 23, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. It's all encompassing. For God so loved the world, not just a few, not just one nation, but as he goes into this whole thought, it is important to, to note, and I want you to understand, as a whole, this, is, this section, a particular section of passages, is referring uh, in the difference between lost under wrath and redeemed under mercy, but I also want to draw your attention to one more little thought that you can draw from this uh, potter and clay scenario, vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. There can be vessels that are, if you do honor and dishonor, do it in likeness of what man would deem it. An honorable life or a dishonorable life? A desirable life or non-undesirable life? And, and as you look at this, understand that in man's eyes, as we look at lives, we look at what God has given different individuals and how he has, he has full control over each individual life. And yet at the same time, not every life is equal. Not every lifetime is equal. Not every lifespan is equal. Not every experience in life is equal. And yet God's in control of every single aspect of human life. So how do we qualify the fact that God would give one, one type of life and, and one type of, uh, uh, of lifetime and another, uh, he would give a whole different scenario that is, is way less favorable. 
Well, you can consider that it, it does deal with the idea of the lost under wrath and the saved under mercy and the redeemed uh, uh, under mercy. But you could also evaluate this through the thought of that vessel formed by the potter, considering men like Jeremiah and the prophets. There were many of the prophets that were somewhat famous, rather well-known, but um, not as, as, as popular or well-known because of people liking them. Most of the prophets of Old Testament were infamous <laughs> because they really, uh, people really didn't like them. They saw them as a troublesome bunch. They had popularity and were well-known because they faced constant ridicule and attack. Their life, in God's eyes, they were a vessel unto honor. In man's eyes, their life was a dishonorable one. These stinking preachers, blowhards, constantly telling us what we're doing wrong. These self-righteous jokers. Does that not sound familiar? In man's eyes, they were dishonorable. Always hurting people in society. Always being mean and ugly. Jeremiah had so much of it, he looked and said, God, you deceived me. I thought this ministry thing was going to be wonderful. I'm miserable. I quit. I won't speak anymore. I won't say another word. I'm done. But his word was like a fire in my bones. Isaiah was mistreated. You could go through many of the different prophets. The Bible even says in Matthew 23, 37, Jesus himself speaking says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Individuals that God saw value, man saw no value. And may I say, even a people that God said, I desired, but you wouldn't have any of it. By the way, those who, who will have nothing to do with God are fitted to destruction. I, I, I've really got to stop right there, but... All, I will say this, all that God does with and through mankind has a holy purpose. Whether in dealings uh, with the saved or dealings with the lost individuals, he shows his great mercy and grace to both the Jew and the Gentile that will believe and obey him alone. By the way, when you see the contrast of what happens to those who walk the broad way, to the contrast to those who walk the narrow way, what you see is the worst aspect of understanding the end of them which lead to destruction. The more wonderful you understand his grace and mercy to be for those who have accepted him and he has poured his grace upon them. 
How could God allow such awful things to happen to people just because they don't like what he does or they don't want to trust in him? Because there has to be a consequence to wrongdoing and to the wrong choice. However, as a whole, even with Pharaoh, Pharaoh wanted nothing to do with the real God, but God lifted him up into prominence just so he could and prove I am God. Even Pharaoh, who thinks he's a God, can't stand before me. That's why I got to quit right here. Woo, woo, I got to quit. I was watching a little thing about one of the, one of the biggest, most well-known atheists in our country and around the world and his arguments with people. And I didn't watch a lot of it because it really just, I just want to throw whatever I'm watching against the wall. Um, but over and over and over again, he argues and argues and argues and argues against there being a designer, against there being a God. No matter what argument is brought, he just, he says, he says, I believe you Christiany people or any, any of you religious-y people that believe in any God out there, he kind of lumped them all together, I believe that many of you are actually very genuine. But in my opinion, you are just delusional because you've let your mind play tricks into believing that something or someone created you and that your life matters to someone outside of evolution. He said, in my opinion, it's just a delusion. By the way, one day he's going to meet that so-called delusion. And what happens to him because he has chosen to be a vessel fit for destruction, what happens to him will not only be the proof that God is God, but it will be that much more proof that, by the way, we all deserve the same thing, but for his grace to those who place their faith and trust in him. And what happens to those who reject him will just highlight what a blessing it is to have his grace because I deserve what they have. But I chose to trust him. And therefore he shed upon me his unmerited grace, mercy, and favor.